Dear Father, we open your word tonight knowing that your spirit is here and you've gathered who you have chosen, Father, and you have placed us in this room according to your will. We have reasons in our own hearts and minds for why we chose to be here, Father, but they are immaterial. For, Father, you planned this day long before we did. So, Father, we give this time over to you and we, we ask expectantly, Father, to do a good work in our heart knowing that you have planned that work as well. Not just our time, Father, but the outcome. And Father, I pray that your word spoken tonight would have the supernatural effect that you intend. For each of us, Father, as you appoint, it would convict us of sin. It would open our eyes to truth. It would drive us, Father, to a life of obedience. And Father, a life that reflects the love you've shown us first. And Lord, as we enter your study, I pray, Father, that what we do and say would be glorifying and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we're going to do a chapter tonight. And I'm not even going to charge extra for that. Let's, uh, let's remember where we left off, where we were last week. We had just ended chapter 1, and our, our, actually our final verse from last week out of chapter 1 was really one of the climactic moments of the whole book. It was, in fact, I'll read it again. Chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. This has been typical for the book. So much said in one verse or in a few, in a few words or one, one sentence. We looked last week coming into that verse at how callous Jonah had been. Coming into this moment, he had done about everything you could do to put himself above those around him, his interests above the interests of those around him. And particularly as a Jew, he had shown callous disregard for any Gentile in his path. He was on the boat because he had shown disregard for the Ninevites. He is now being thrown overboard because he didn't have the courage, if you will, or the decency, if you will, to jump himself. He made those men in the boat do it for him. We looked at that last week, and if you remember in verse 14, these men, having been Gentile and having been pagan men their whole lives, were yet showing more concern and compassion and respect for a God they did not know that they would even be willing to pray to him in advance of this act, asking for mercy because they felt that even in all that was going on and all that they understood, it was still wrong to put this man overboard. And so they looked to that God for mercy. These are people who are reflecting all the godly traits that a man who knew God should do. And yet, in the meantime, the godly man is doing all the things that you'd expect out of pagan unbelievers. The role reversal has been stark all the way through chapter 1. And at the very end of chapter 1, we see the result. Jonah overboard, Jonah in the stomach of the fish. And we're told he's there for three days and three nights. When we looked at this last week, we just started to talk about it. And at that point, we had discovered at least a couple things, I think. First, we know that he's in this fish, having been put there by God, and he's being supernaturally preserved in the meantime. But he's still in the midst of a trying circumstance. So really, he's in a situation better than death, but only barely. God has preserved him, but done so in such a way that the preservation itself provides opportunity. Rather than let him float on a piece of wood or be lifted up supernaturally out of the water or any other way that God may have saved the man from death, he does it in this very unique way. He creates essentially a convenient container where Jonah could be saved, but at the same time placing him in a place where he could contemplate his circumstances, where he could begin to understand what's going on. This week I want to add one other consideration out of verse 17 before we move on into chapter 2. God's choice for how he's going to save Jonah includes this little bonus, this little bonus advantage for, for God and for God's plan. Fish can swim. 
I came up with that all by myself. It was about the second hour of study kind of came to me all of a sudden. Fish can swim, which means, in fact, fish can swim significant distances. It's been known, scientists know that you know, some species of whales circumnavigate the globe or at least cross uh, huge portions of the, of the oceans as they migrate. What, what I'm getting at here is that about the time Jonah's ready to leave the fish, as we're going to see here in a minute, he finds himself already back to the shores of Israel. So it's not just that he's being held by God, he's being transported back even in the midst of his circumstances. Kind of a nice little bonus in the way God has prepared these circumstances. It's a one-way ticket, if you will, back to obedience. It's also an awesome display, in my mind, of God's power over his creation in order to accomplish his will. And, if you will, it's a sober reminder of what God is prepared to do to, get, to accomplish his will through us. He's even willing to command the creation in this way to get his will. I said this, I think, in the first week. You know, when God asks us to do something, there's uh, an easy way and then there's a hard way. And Jonah's chosen the hard way. But there's still a way. God's will is not thwarted. The other thing I want to mention on verse 17 is it may have reminded you of something from our Luke study, kind of depending on uh, which weeks you were here. And I should also add, I guess, how attentive you were. Uh, You may remember a verse out of Luke where Jesus describes himself and makes a comparison to Jonah. It's in the Gospels in Luke, but it's also in Matthew. And I think in Matthew's account, it's actually a little better. So we're going to look at Matthew's account for a moment. Because when Jesus draws this comparison between himself and Jonah, he's teaching us something very important. And he was teaching the nation of Israel something very important in their day. It hinges on verse 17 of chapter 1. So before we get into chapter 2, which we will do tonight... I think it's incumbent upon us to understand what was Jesus talking about when he referred to this verse out of chapter 1 of Jonah and compared himself to the circumstances. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And as I said, we did cover this a little in Luke, but I prefer Matthew's version for the sake of what we're going to do tonight. Matthew 28, or rather Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the question, the first question for tonight is, what is the comparison Jesus is making here in Matthew? What, are we trying, what is he trying to teach us? Well, first, let's understand the circumstances in which he made this statement back in the time of Matthew chapter 12. He's under assault from the Pharisees. Much of this should be fresh on your mind from our study of Luke, they considered Jesus to be a fraud and they considered Him to be a threat to their authority. And if you remember the story out of Luke, this statement comes right after Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man who was mute. And if you remember, that kind of healing was characteristic of the Messiah. So, having seen that miracle, having seen the crowd react to that miracle and say... That must be the son of David. That must be the Messiah. They now ask Jesus for a sign. Asking for a sign in Jewish culture meant seeking tangible evidence 
that the word of that prophet could be trusted. So in other words, it was a test born out of disbelief. I don't believe you. Prove yourself to me with a test. This is different than someone who needed a sign to bolster faith. Classic example, of course, is Gideon in the book of Judges, who was not sure whether or not he had heard God correctly, and before taking action, he wanted assurance from God that he was taking the right path. Very different kind of request than what you see happening here with the Pharisees. This is a matter of, I don't believe you, prove yourself. They needed a sign in order to believe. Now, Jesus responds that their eager seeking, or in my translation, the word is craving, their craving for a sign was characteristic of an evil and unbelieving generation. So they were proving their disbelief and their evil hearts by even their desire to request such a sign. And to that kind of unbelief, the only sign he said they would receive is the, quote, sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. And he goes on, as, you, as I've already mentioned, to quote Jonah 1.17 and makes a comparison to himself. So immediately, before you even understand what the sign is, we ought to be struck by the fact that Jonah's experience in the fish, three days and three nights, was orchestrated by God so that it could be useful as a picture of Christ. Now, I know it had other purposes, and we'll study all of that in the course of this study, but just the fact that the way that event took place, a fish was used, and it was three days, not two, not four, the way God carried out those circumstances for Jonah, he already had in his mind, this will end up being a picture for other purposes when Jesus comes on earth. And to me, that's a reminder of the awesome display, yet again, of God's power to essentially bring all circumstances together in, in this creation, in this world, so that the details of even a story like this would fit perfectly into future events, specifically into our Lord's death and resurrection. What can't he control? What isn't under his control? I mean, somebody who might want to argue the point would say, well, how, you know, how did he know Jonah would end up on a boat? How did he know Jonah would end up rebelling in the first place? Well, exactly. It was always in God's plan that it would come out exactly that way. And yet, if you had been Jonah in the moment, you had no sensation that God was manipulating you. You never would have thought, oh, why is he making me go to Joppa? Why is he making me get off this boat? I mean, that's not how Jonah perceived it, nor would that be how you and I perceive our life. And yet the fact remains, God being sovereign over his creation has us doing exactly what he wants us to do. And yet he's not responsible for our sin, but simply works through it. There's a mystery there. You can't resolve this side of heaven. But because you can't resolve it does not give us license to say it doesn't exist, which is sometimes the way Christians react, I think, to things that they don't understand. If you can't explain it to me to my satisfaction, then I deny it even is true. I can't explain the Trinity, but I know it's there. And I can't explain God's sovereignty over men to this degree, and yet it's clearly there in the pages of the Bible. But that's the fact of what we see here. So again, going back to the point, how is Jonah's experience then similar in such a way that it becomes a sign? How is it a sign for Jesus? Well, let's start with the obvious part. I hope it's obvious to you anyway. The part that Jesus himself explained to us. When Jonah comes out of the fish, he returns as if from the grave. And having been buried in the sea, so to speak, for three days and three nights, and by the way, that picture of death is magnified even more when you remember that the Jews saw the deep of the sea as a picture of the abyss of death itself. That's why Jews were not a seagoing people. They feared the sea greatly. They had nothing to do with the sea generally. In fact, the word for abyss in the Greek is often used interchangeably for the word deep sea in the New Testament. So, you know, in Revelation, when it said in verse 20, or chapter 20, and the sea, or I think it's 19 or 20, the sea will give up their dead. The word for sea 
abusos, which is abyss, which is another word for hell. So, in other words, to the Jew, the deep sea, hell, the abyss, the pit, it's all one thing. One is a picture of the other, and they're so indistinguishable, they don't really care to make a distinction in their, in their words. The picture is very easy. Jonah in the sea for three days and comes up out of three nights. Jesus in the grave for three days and comes up after three nights. It is a clear picture of resurrection in both cases. One, one reality, the other a picture. So for any Jew who hears of Jonah's experience after the fact, hey, guess where I was? Where? I was in a fish under the water for three days and three nights, and I came back. The picture of him having been resurrected from death would have been an obvious one for any Jew, having he- just to hear this story. And Jesus makes that comparison for us. So that's the first, and I would argue the most obvious piece of the comparison, but that just scratches the surface of what Jesus is talking about here. If Jonah's experience in the fish, then, was to be a picture of Jesus' time in the grave, in what way is that to be a sign to this evil and unbelieving generation in Matthew 12? Well, consider Jonah's experience in a little more detail, even from what we just know of his story so far. Like Jesus in his day, Jonah in his day lived in the midst of an evil and unbelieving generation within the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, which was apostate, which had evil kings, which took them into idol worship and all manner of, of debauchery and uh, you know, departing from the God that they knew and from the law. In fact, in Jonah's day, there was another prophet who was a contemporary of Jonah called Hosea. And while Jonah's off doing what he's doing with the fish and eventually to Nineveh, you have Hosea still in the northern kingdom proclaiming to that kingdom that pending judgment, that God was about to lower his hand on this country for their judgment, for for their sin. I want you to listen to what he says to them in chapter 5, verse 1 of Hosea. He says, Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chasten all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them. And it goes on and on and on. If you've read that book, it's one verse after another like that. So here we have this interesting comparison. In Jonah's day, you have, on the one hand, Hosea being sent to the nation of Israel with a message of repentance? No. With a message of judgment. Meanwhile, another prophet in Israel is sent outside the city, outside the country, to a Gentile nation with a message of judgment? No. With a message of repentance. With a message of mercy. Doesn't that seem opposite? To God's own people, he sends a prophet that says you're about to be judged. To the non-Jew, to the Gentile world, to the stranger and the outsider, he sends a message of, you can be forgiven. Repentance is offered. Mercy is available. Think of it this way. When Jonah gets out of the fish, where is the shore? Well, it's the western shore of Israel. Where is Nineveh? Far to the east. So Jonah literally has to get out of the fish, walk all the way across Israel to get to Nineveh with a message of repentance. It's very visual. It's, It's a clear picture of Jonah passing by Israel. Ignoring Israel for the sake of a Gentile nation. And it's no record, by the way, in Scripture that Jonah ever said anything to the nation of Israel at any point in his ministry that resulted in any kind of mass uh, repentance or acceptance of God. Certainly nothing like what will happen in Nineveh. That never seems to be part of Jonah's ministry. So where are we going with this? My point here is that God could have done all the same things for Israel that he's clearly purposed to do for Nineveh. 
And yet instead, he sends Jonah to this foreign people while overlooking his own. He could have saved the nation of Israel with this message, but he chose not to. And as you heard out of Hosea, it is for their for the fact that they have done what they have done, that he is not going to offer them that opportunity. So now we have another piece of this puzzle here for how this Jonah connection is a sign for the generation in Jesus' day. Jonah was a man brought back from the grave, so to speak, having been buried at three days in the sea. When he returns, he passes over Israel and instead brings a message of repentance to a foreign people. Likewise, Jesus, after spending three days in a grave, will return bringing a message of repentance that passes over the nation of Israel and instead is received by a foreign people. Listen to how Paul describes that in Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 19. He says, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Meaning they didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. And he answers it by saying this. No, first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. He goes on in Romans 10, 20. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul goes on in Romans 11:7 to say this, But what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, did they not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. And here's the verse to remember. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. What God is showing, what Jesus was stating through this comparison between himself and Jonah was that in Jonah's day, the jealousy of the Jews would be provoked by God's relationship with the Assyrian nation. And in the days following Jesus' coming, that same kind of jealousy was to be provoked in the nation of Israel by the church, by a Gentile church brought to faith by a message that comes from whom else? Jewish prophets. By John the Baptist first, by Jesus himself, and ultimately through his messengers, the apostles, all Jews, men who went out from the nation of Israel to the Gentile world and brought a message of repentance that was gleefully, joyfully received, even as it was rejected and persecuted by the the nation that had the opportunity first. And so, in that situation, I want you to look, in fact, to the last verse as I read it out of Matthew 12. When Jesus sums it up, he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation, meaning the generation in Jesus' day, at the judgment and will condemn it Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That statement makes clear, I believe, that when Jesus says Jonah is a sign to that evil generation of his day, the sign is a sign of judgment. The fact that there is going to be a Gentile receiving of the gospel is a sign to the nation of Israel in Israel's day that they are being judged. Just as it was in Jonah's day, the fact that there would be an Assyrian nation, the city of Nineveh, receiving God, even as the nation of Israel hears from Hosea, you're to be judged, is the sign that the evil generation in Jesus' day needed to appreciate. That the very fact that I will come back after three days in the grave and be received by the Gentiles is proof to you that you're on the road to judgment. Because that's the picture out of what happened in Jonah's day. Hosea goes on in chapter 11. 
to declare something very interesting which will allow us to draw the final parallel here in this sign. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. They call, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. And this is God talking in the first person about the nation of Israel. God goes on in chapter 11, verse 3. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took, I took them in my arms, but they do not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but to Assyria. He will be their king, because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels, and they do not know the Lord. In a fascinating twist, this is out of what Hosea was telling the nation of Israel, even as Jonah was off talking to the Assyrians. What God told the nation through Hosea in this fascinating twist is, he was, being, he was prepared to bring judgment against them for their unbelief, but he was going to do it by using the very same people who were at that time receiving his mercy through Jonah's proclamation. It was the very same Assyrians who were now receiving God through Jonah who are going to be used by God to judge the nation of Israel for their unbelief. Later, the nation of Israel in Jesus' day is going to be suffering at the hands of an oppressor who will come in and destroy them, much like the Assyrians did. Which nation did that? The Roman nation. Which nation was it that received the gospel in Jesus' day? None other than that same Roman nation. The Rome of Asia Minor. The Rome of the Diaspora. The Rome of of uh, Greece and, and Rome proper, the Rome even of Judea, the Roman nation that had taken over most of the world in the day of, the, uh, of Jesus and of the apostles was the same world, if you will, the same nation that ultimately turned around and destroyed the nation of Israel 40 years later in AD 70. It's an exact parallel to the way it happened in the time of Assyria for the nation of Israel in that day. Therefore, the unbelieving generation in Jesus' day received a sign, the sign of Jonah, and that sign was of a prophet brought back from the dead to declare mercy, but to a foreign people, rather than to the nation that stood before him. And that prophet's own people were going to reject the message. And when that happened, it was a sure sign to them that God was about to judge them for their unbelief. That's what he means when he said, only thing they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. So back into the story of Jonah now, back to the fish. Let's go to chapter 2. Verse 1, Jonah having a cozy little get-together with this fish. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. And I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all my, your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. 
So there's a lot there. I read it as a single group of texts because it's a single moment and a single prayer. It needs to be seen that way. We'll break it down, but not by a lot. That's not so much the way you approach this chapter. It's, it's really a chapter that you need to approach as a group. And I want to show you some of what I think is going on in, in Jonah's mind. For the very first time, we see him praying. For the first time, the man prays. Even more maybe than the content of the prayer for the time being, just the fact that he prays is significant in this book. Finally, the man's been brought down low enough, his, his pride has been diminished enough that he's ready to turn to God. And we all know, I hope, a little bit of what Jonah's probably feeling right here. Prayer ultimately is a humble act. Now, there are false forms of prayer. The, the classic example out of Luke when we've studied that was the Pharisee and the tax collector who both entered the temple together and the Pharisee's prayer was, thank you God that I'm not like him and then proceeded to go into a lecture about how good he was and how bad everybody else was. That's not prayer. And if you know the story, it's all about the fact that he wasn't really praying anyway. It was simply a nice statement to himself about how good he felt. In contrast, you have the tax collector who walks in and says, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Any true prayer is ultimately an act of being humble before God, of acknowledging that you need Him, that He is in charge, not you, and that you can't do it without Him. If those sentiments, if those thoughts are not integral into your prayer life, then I question, or maybe you should question, are you even praying? Is the physical act itself really rising to the level of prayer? Is there, no, is there a humble spirit behind it? Is there a contrite, submissive spirit in the moment? Because if not, what you may be doing is what the Pharisee did. You may be entertaining yourself. Because you're the only one listening. So I hope you're getting something out of it. But that may be what's happening if you're not putting this before God in the right spirit. That's what's changed for Jonah here. For all of his thoughts and actions and, and, and personal interests up to this point, none of them reached the point of actually appealing to God in a humble spirit to say, okay, God, this is about you, not me, and your will, not mine, and help me because I can't do it myself. That should be a common sentiment for anyone who's got any prayer life at all. And in fact, you know, maybe we go to prayer often at the very last step of a process when it should be the first, right? It's always, in my experience, it's when everything else fails, then you pray. When your own effort fails, you've gone as far as you can go, you need prayer to kind of get you over the hump. If, if that's your way of approaching prayer, and I know that's mine at times, you've really turned prayer into a safety net. You're on the high wire, you're taking care of business, but you know you've got prayer down there in case things fall apart at the end. I, you know, if you ever get the, the email chains with prayer in them? You know, it's from the, from the root of a problem that the prayer request comes. I, I rarely see the, the kind of the opposite of that, where the prayer comes out and says, I've got a choice between a BMW and a Mercedes. Could you pray for me? And I don't mean it's a, you know, kind of facetiously. I mean, it seems like the good decisions, we got that. You know, I don't really need to make that a prayer request. I, I can handle that. I got that. But when it gets to the point where I, don't, I can't heal myself, so I need a prayer for that. Uh, you know, I've got, I don't have a job. So I need prayer for that. And it, it tells us something, I think, about our heart when we look at prayer in that negative way, when it's always the resort because I have no other option, as opposed to direction from the Father so that I don't make a mistake in the first place. Because ultimately, that's what comes from a lot of that independent decision-making, right? We, we choose the job or we buy the house or whatever the thing is that we think we can control. Then it doesn't work out. Then we go to God in prayer and say, help me out of this problem. 
And I know that's a tendency we all share. Jonah here has effectively been doing that. Now, he's been doing it in a very negative way from the standpoint that he just is rebelling all the way through this process. But finally, he can't control it anymore. You know, he could control it when it was on the ship. He could even control it when it was a decision to jump or be thrown overboard. Now it's not so easy. More amazing than the fact that he prays finally is what? That it takes him three days to pray. He's on the third day and he says, I think I better pray to God. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm praying at about the point I passed the tonsils. Why would you wait to the third day? Only if two things, one of two things is true. You're the most stubborn man life has ever produced. And though this is a pretty stubborn guy, I don't know that I want to give him that title because I don't know that he deserves it. Or number two, you don't realize you're in a fish. Because the circumstances he finds himself in here are not the ones he anticipated. Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, no, duh, Steve, nobody expected to be in a fish, that's not what I'm talking about. Because I don't think that that's what Jonah knows. You've assumed something there. You've assumed that he knows he's in a fish. Somebody here, describe what it's like to be in a fish. Here's a tip, boys and girls, so that in case you ever find yourself in a fish, you'll know how to handle it. You wouldn't know how to start that conversation, would you? How about this one? If you're in hell, here's how you'll know. That's just as hard, isn't it? So how do you know if you're in a fish or if you're in hell? You might be awful similar if you don't know the difference. He jumps into the water assuming he's going to drown, right? Uh, It's a safe assumption he didn't know how to swim. And I say that because virtually no one knew how to swim unless they were on the sea. Because there wasn't much reason to swim. People didn't have swimming pools in their backyard. It wasn't a, a recreational activity as much as it is today. Generally, people didn't have swimming attire. So swimming, as a general rule, was not commonly known. You know, they, there wasn't a YMCA to teach you. So in Jonah's day particularly, there was not a very easy place to go swimming. And as a Jew, they would have been fearful of the water anyway. So getting in water, deep enough you can't stand, is equivalent to suicide. I mean, I say, seriously, I mean, you're not going to survive water if you can't stand. So jumping off the boat, he intended to just sink like a rock, and that's the end of it. That was his expectation. What he didn't plan was to be slowly digested in a fish. That didn't enter into his mind at all, of course. Think about the content of the prayer. First thing you notice is it's expressed in the past tense. Now, the whole book is in the third person because it's being, called, it's being written as a narrative. But when the prayer comes in, Jonah starts talking in the first person. And it's logical to assume he wrote the book. That's not necessarily provable fact, but it makes sense considering that this part of the book goes into the first person. It's a first-person narrative of the prayer, but it's all spoken in the past tense. If this was a story about Jonah, you wouldn't have to put it in the first person. You could say, Jonah prayed and just expressed the prayer. He puts it in quotes and puts it in the first person. So it's a first-person statement. That implies to me Jonah wrote it, but it doesn't prove it. But what's interesting is he prays in the, in the past tense, first person. That's a very interesting way to pray. I mean, if you look at the text as I've read it, I called out of my distress. Why not just saying, why not just put it in the first person and then describe the prayer itself? Oh Lord, save me from the depths of Sheol. In other words, he, he describes it in a third person context, which is a very odd way to do it. You won't see this done in Scripture very often. It seems to suggest that this is his memory of what he prayed in light of what he knew at the time, as opposed to someone who knew at the moment what was going on, and this is simply him relating the experience. It would be like trying to explain to someone what you did in a certain circumstance, and yet make sure that the person understood that what you did was limited by a certain knowledge you had at the time. 
and that now looking back at it, you, wouldn't, you would see it differently, but you don't want them to lose the appreciation for the fact that your knowledge was limited in the moment. So this past tense viewpoint, I think, makes clear that what was going on in Jonah's mind did not include the concept that I'm in a fish. He did not pray as if someone praying from a fish. In fact, scan the whole prayer. There is no reference to fish anywhere in it. There's not even an indirect reference to a fish. There's no concept here of, save me from this fish. Can I leave the fish, God? Can, do, do I have to stay here? Are you going to kill me in the fish? Can you save me? No reference whatsoever in that way. Now, if you knew you were in a fish, wouldn't you make that part of the prayer somewhere? Let me go. Can I get out? What he says instead is, are repeated references to Sheol, or to the pit, or to the abyss, or to the deep. All synonymous terms to a Jew for what you and I would consider the place for the dead. Now, Sheol was a complex uh, concept to a Jew. You can't call it hell because it wasn't just that. To an Old Testament saint, it was also the holding place for the good. It included two halves, if you know the story out of Luke. It was hell for those who came as unbelievers. It was Abraham's bosom for those who came as believers. And it was the holding place for that good group as well as for the bad until such time as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, at which point he set free the captives who were held in that state and brought them to heaven in his presence. So at the time this is being written, there's only one place you go when you're dead. I don't care who you are. It was Sheol. So it's not to assume necessarily that he thinks he's in the bad side of Sheol, that much we're not as clear on yet as we look at the text. But there is a clear reference here to, I'm dead. Now, some commentators and some who have taught this, and, and I've heard some of the teaching, have come into this set of verses in chapter 2, and they see these references to the death of a man or to the Sheol, and what they conclude is, Jonah did die, that he drowned and that God resurrected him. And ah, that's the sign of Jonah, a resurrected man. There's two problems with that concept. First, you're forgetting the fact that this is Jonah's appreciation of his circumstance. That doesn't automatically mean it was his circumstance. And in fact, considering that you don't know what it's like to be in a fish any more than you know what it's like to be in hell, it's a logical mistake. He jumped in the water expecting death. Next thing you know, he's in this completely dark, moist, smelly, uncomfortable place that he can't get out of. And for all he knows, he's in hell. Or in Sheol, to be more specific. Uh, and, and the other reason I think you're going too far to assume he's died and resurrected is because that violates the principle of first fruits of the resurrection. Christ was to be the first of all resurrected, Paul tells us. And if, if this truly was a case of Jonah dying such that his spirit was in Sheol and then later resurrected into his own body yet again, he would have been the first one resurrected, not Jesus. And spiritually speaking, not just because of Scripture telling us this, but also theologically, that can't be the case. So it can't be the case that he actually died, or much less resurrected. So why the references to Sheol? Just scan through the text with me, and this is why I said I wasn't going to take it blow by blow through the verses. I want you to see it as a whole. Verse 2, we're told, he says, I fell into the water and expected to experience death. In the verses that I've read already, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You don't cry from the depths of Sheol unless you're there. In your own mind, that is. In your expectation. He calls out, we're told, from the depths of Sheol. Uh, verse 3, he says, I was in, he kind of recounts the experience. I was in the deep, or I was in the depths. This is, again, a synonymous word for water as well as for the abyss or hell. 
I was engulfed by the water. Verses 4 and 5, again, he repeats. Now he's into the point of actually saying the prayer uh, to God. I was engulfed. The seaweed entangled me. Uh, I was expelled from your sight. Now, why would you say that just because you're in the water? Unless, of course, you think that means I have, been di- I have died and I am separated from you in my death. So at this point, I would argue, he's presuming to have died and he's now being held in Sheol, awaiting his day of resurrection with the Messiah. A day that he will be with God in his temple. Remember, this is the outcome for every man who died in the Old Testament. They all went to Sheol. So what's surprising Jonah, I would argue, is the conditions in Sheol. He expected, you know, four or five star treatment as a prophet. He's getting like one star treatment in Sheol. This is not the pleasant experience he was expecting in his afterlife. And now he's starting to wonder a little bit about maybe he presumed a little too much for what he had coming in light of how he treated God before he died. And so he says things like verse 6, I'm at the root of the mountain. The root, root like a plant root at the base of a mountain. A reference to the location of Sheol. You know, the Jewish perspective on where hell was, on where Sheol was, was in the depths of the world, in the center of the earth, underneath the mountains. So his picture here is, I'm at the root of the mountains. I'm in the the depths of the earth. He says, I'm in a prison in verse 6. Bars holding me in. Well, can you imagine the constrained, claustrophobic feeling of being in a fish, even one large enough to hold a man for three days and three nights? In the pit of a fish's stomach? Verse 7, I'm fainting away in this terrible environment, he says. And then he credits the Lord with, bringing, with, with hearing his prayer and knowing that God had received it. In verses 8 and 9, he says, While the unrighteous are worshiping idols and forsaking God, I am prepared to sacrifice to God, to give Him thanks, and to give gifts. When he says, I vowed, I will pay what I vowed, he's saying, I will make good on my tithes, if you will, or on my gifts. And you could broaden that to include more than just money. You could include service as a gift. And in such, if you did so, you'd be implying, I can, I'll go do as you tell me to do. I will keep my vow of service to you. And then he ends it with, for salvation is from the Lord. Never is there a truer statement in Scripture. Where is he going in his mind here? Now, to understand it, you really have to put yourself in the mindset of someone who anticipated dying, so believes he has, is in a fish that makes him feel very uncomfortable. It's been three days and three nights, so Sheol. What is Sheol like? You don't know. So you don't know what to complain about. You show up, day one, not so good, kind of getting stuffy in here, waiting for the better part. When does it happen? Day two, trying to be patient with you here, God, but when do I get the other end of this process? I thought I did the right thing. You promised me you know, good things when I die. Day three, okay, maybe I wasn't so good after all. Maybe this is the bad side of Sheol. Now, I'm reading a lot into the text, I grant you that. But when you look at his prayer, it's the prayer of a man who's worried about his circumstances, is concerned about whether or not God is going to rescue him from those circumstances and makes vows and promises and, and, and appeals for mercy to that very same God. And then at the very end says, salvation is from the Lord. Which is a statement more than just to say the obvious God saves. It's a statement to say it is his decision who he saves. It is his action that saves. Now remember what put him here. This is a man who jumped overboard rather than take the message of repentance to a people he didn't prefer. Because his fear was they would get saved. Now, he's had to walk a mile in another man's shoes, so to speak. What God has done here, in a sense, is allowed Jonah to experience the world that awaits the unbeliever. Not literally. I mean, he didn't go to Sheol. We know that. 
But in Jonah's mind, he just spent three days in hell, and it's not so nice. And now he's ready to see it from the other man's perspective. This scene is so reminiscent to me of the story of Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Here's a man on the road to ruin, given this chance to kind of look forward in time and to see where a hard heart will place him in the end. And in this case, particularly, Jonah gets the chance to see, for those who do not know the Lord, this is, in a sense, what they have waiting. Having been there yourself, do you feel a little more compassion for them, Jonah? Are you a little bit more ready to go do what I've asked you to do? Because after all, salvation is from the Lord. Because remember, the only reason, Jonah, you don't have this experience to come for yourself is because I graciously extended you salvation by my own choosing. So really, Jonah, you're a Ninevite before Jonah came to you. Now, you're the Jonah, and there's a Ninevite waiting. You know how it feels. Don't hold back. It's amazing to me how God did so many things in the same moment. Saving the man from his own attempts to die, moving him toward the land so that when he's ready, he'll be placed in the proper position to start his walk toward Nineveh. And the whole time that trip is taking place, he says, why don't we take a tour of hell, Jonah? What do you think? Have any different opinions about what you should do as my man on the scene to declare my mercy to the Ninevites? He had been disobedient in his unwillingness to go to a people that God had determined to behave. And that disobedience had been born out of a lack of compassion for what those people would experience one day in their future. It was a complete self-centered, selfish view of who we are and who God is. Finally, I want you to look at another aspect of how God carried out these circumstances because it's not just how He showed Jonah what the Ninevites needed. Look at how He actually used the experience on the boat and now in the fish to draw a comparison for what He put those men through on the boat. He put them through misery too. Look at, if you have a Bible where the pages are you know, close enough or if you have to flip, look with me at a couple of, uh, at both chapter 1 and chapter 2 in parallel. We're gonna, I'm just going to cite verses as you look down the two chapters with me. I want you to see the parallel here. Chapter 1, verse 4. You have the sailors on the boat. There's a crisis on the sea. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. You have Jonah describing, in his own words, a crisis in the sea. The terror, the helplessness, the feeling that the sea was going to overwhelm and that I have no hope. Then going back to chapter 1, those sailors now in verse 14 eventually reach the point where they're praying to the true God, Yahweh. In chapter 2, verses verses 2, and then again on verse 7 in chapter 2, you see Jonah praying to God in light of his circumstances on the sea. Back to chapter 1, the sailors in chapter 1, verse 15, are delivered from the storm because of their prayer. And again, in chapter six, or chapter 2, verse 6, you have the prophet Jonah delivered from drowning, as he, de- as he describes it, God saving me from my drowning. Finally, at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, the sailors offer sacrifice and vows to God. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, Jonah, I will sacrifice, I will keep my vows. In Jonah's own words and in his thoughts, he mirrors the experience that he put the men through in that boat. What God is saying here is that this man's selfishness resulted in those sailors' misery, which resulted in God stepping in to save them on the basis of their appeal. Now, Jonah gets to relive that experience himself from inside the fish. God giving Jonah yet again another way of seeing how his selfishness and lack of compassion had an impact on others 
by seeing it firsthand himself. You know, I don't want to make this a rule because it's not a rule, but it certainly is a pattern. Sin sin has consequences. And it seems to be God's pattern that the way in which we prefer to sin, he will often use to turn around on us such that the same kind of sin becomes the punishment by which he will discipline us. Not a perfect rule, but I've seen it so often in my own life and I see it in Scripture quite often as well. I want you to be aware of that in your own life. That where you choose to fall the most for lack of care and obedience, you may very well see the most consequence coming back in like manner. The father who is, has a proclivity to a certain kind of sin with his son may result in a son who comes back against the father with that same kind of sin in reverse. Uh, you see it in, in, in marriage relationships quite often. You see it in business kinds of dealings. The ones who will be dishonest in their business will often be cheated by some other client. It's not a rule, and I don't pretend to say that God has to follow that rule every case. It does seem to be the case that he prefers to show us our own faults by letting us look in a mirror. A final point tonight. We ended with salvation is from the Lord. You know the word there for salvation in the Hebrew? Yeshua. Yeshua. Joshua, that, that name in Hebrew literally means Yeshua is salvation. Jesus is the Greek translation of the word Joshua. So, Yeshua being used here for the word salvation is a clear tie-in to the thought that salvation is from the Lord, yes, but that salvation is through a man, Jesus. Given to us even in that oblique way through the wording that's being used at this point in the book. We'll come back in next week into chapter 3 and watch now what this man does. If you're beginning to think, oh, well, we're past the bad part, Jonah's now on on the right team and he's on board and he's headed down to Nineveh to do the right thing, you haven't read the end of the story then. This is a man who's pretty much willing to do anything to get out. As he comes out, he realizes, oh, I wasn't in hell after all. I was just in a fish. And that prompts him to, I think, revert. And what God taught him in the fish was, there but for the grace of God go you, Jonah. You've been saved no differently than I'm asking you to do for the Ninevites. You didn't earn it any more than they will. You're my prophet. Speak as I command you to. And have a compassion when you understand what you were saved from just as they will be saved from. But in true fashion, just like you and I, that thought tends to fade. And the thought that comes to replace it is, I deserve what I have. Everyone else needs to earn it. And Jonah's going to go to the Ninevites with that kind of perspective, a very classic kind of, uh, dare I say, Christian perspective in some circles, kind of a judgmental perspective. And it, re- it kind of shows itself again as he shows up on the scene in Nineveh. And next thing you know, the old Jonah's there. So the story isn't, over by a long shot. We'll come back into that next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, so often, Father, Your punishment comes upon us in ways that we would prefer to avoid. But, Father, You've given us in our own uh, lives so many ways to avoid it. And that way, Father, is obedience. We're reminded as we look at Jonah tonight, Father, that what we've been saved from is nothing we earned. It is a fate, Father, we are so thankful not to have before us any longer. But, Father... Can it be our motivation to go out and bring others the good news? I pray it would. Could it be the thing, Father, that reminds us to be humble in our receipt of Your grace and not prideful and expectant as if we deserved it? I pray it would be. And Father, as we end tonight and go into our week ahead and all the ways You've called us to walk in this world, I pray, Father, the light we would shine would be Yours. It would be so visible, Father, that it would draw others to You. And it would be a light, Father, of grace first and foremost and of love uh, above all things. And Father, in that, we could be useful to You. 
Thank you, Father, for the attendance tonight and for the opportunity to study. May we return next week, if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.